Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe and I recently had the chance to talk with Nelson Dellis. Uh, he is a memory champion. A memory athlete, as yes. some might say. Yes, some would even say a mental athlete. Um, though when I when we chatted with him, he did mention that he doesn't like to use that terminology because if he goes over to the UK, that makes him sound like there's he's, right, he's got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, this this guy is one of the the leading memory athletes in in the world. Uh, he is uh, he uses the uh, the method of loci, the memory palace, which is this fabulous uh, device uh, that allows you to uh, use spatial memory to catalog uh, at times just obscure facts or even just useless data. It's really one of the great mental technologies that I've ever encountered. I haven't used it much, but I think it's very interesting, and I'd like to give it an exploration sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So we recently chatted with Nelson, and uh, we're going to air that interview. But first, we thought it would be uh, helpful to go ahead and uh, re-air some previous Stuff to Blow Your Mind content about the Memory Palace, about the method of loci, how it works, where it comes from. And then we'll talk to the expert himself to get some uh, inside information. So without any further ado, here is Robert and Julie's excellent old discussion of the Memory Palace. Julie, I don't have the best memory in the world. Um, I mean, maybe it's an average memory. I'm not saying I have problems with my brain or anything, but uh, I often forget that. I think everybody has this, where the the really boring stuff you need to remember sometimes, uh, you don't remember. I can have a simple list to go to the grocery with, and if I don't have it written like in the notes section of my iPhone, then I'm not going to remember everything, even if it's something vital, like, some, the thing that I need to eat that night, an important component in the in the, the meal, uh, I still will forget to pick it up. I'm sorry. What, what were you just saying? <sighs> now that's just. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I have a horrible memory. I actually, I read something uh, in our research that compared memory to a Wikipedia entry. Really? Yeah, and they were saying it's like it's your memory is constantly being altered and augmented, and then sometimes pared away. Yeah, and sometimes the stuff that it's being uh, updated with is completely uh, not true. It's horse manure sometimes, yeah. turns out. Yeah. And, and uh, that's not necessarily what we're going to talk about today, but you had actually talked to me about that before, and I thought it was fascinating. Weren't you saying that when you have a memory, each time you bring it up, you're revising it in some way? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely have to cover that in an upcoming uh, yeah. episode uh, in more detail. But, yeah, every time you, you bring up a, a memory, you're not just removing it pristine from the vault and then returning it pristine to the, to the vault, uh, but you're updating it each time because your brain needs updated information. Right. Uh, because we live in a world, uh, as, as we discussed in our math podcast, we live in a world and have to navigate a world of multiple movable objects and symbols. So we have to be able to fly with that. Yep, and then hence the horse manure sometimes, right? Right. Right. So people have had horrible memories for as long as we've had to remember things because uh, just as as we discussed in the math podcast, we develop mathematics to do the things that we're not naturally inclined to be able to do with our normal mental faculties. Right. We have to develop systems. But what to do if you're in the Roman Empire, for, for instance, just hanging out? 
and you don't necessarily have a ton of books around you or your uh, your iPhone there. Yep. Well, in this case, you turn to something called the Memory Palace, uh, also known as the Method of uh, Loki, right? That's right. Yep. And uh, the uh, the origins of this go back to a uh, particular, uh, uh, back to the 5th century B.C., and a Greek poet by the name of Simonides of Sios. And uh, he was attending a party, you know, in the dining hall, having fun, uh, around a table with a bunch uh, bunch of buddies, and he... uh, Walked out for a few minutes, and the whole entire place collapsed behind him. Oh, he walked yeah. out. I wondered how he survived. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe he went out for smoke or something. I don't sure, know. yeah. But, uh, but he went outside, uh, and everything collapsed. He survives. Everybody else is just crushed to, to just mush, just a smucker's jam. Yeah. There's n- no identifying these people. But he was smuckers this... Jam. Yeah, with a name like Smuckers. Um so he goes back in. Oh, he doesn't go back in. But uh, they, they dig everything up. Again, Smucker's Jam everywhere. And they're like, all right, who were each of these uh, people? And he, he says, well, let me think about it. And he's able to identify each puddle uh, as as uh, he's able to. Grape Concord. Yeah. That was. Yeah. He's, so-and-so. he's able to identify them based on their seating position at the table. Mm-hmm. He's able to remember where they were spatially. Okay. And and therefore remember who they were and identify these remains. And this was a big moment for him, right? Yeah, because then he realized, hey, uh, I could apply this to other things in my life. If I have a list I need to remember, if there's a long list of facts I need to get down, this is how I could do it. And uh, and and so this survived for ages, uh, you know, well, you know, th- for centuries and centuries and on up uh, through today. Mm-hmm. Um, one uh, big proponent of this was uh, uh, Dominican monk uh, Giordano uh, Bruno, who um, was actually he was burned at the stake in uh, 1600 uh, for heresy. But it wasn't the memory uh, palace method that uh, that got him there, though. I think some people found it kind of creepy, but uh, his whole thing had to do with uh, he believed that God was present in nature and that the universe and life was infinite. Therefore, that you know there might be aliens or something, and uh, and so the, so that got him into the hot water. Yeah, the Roman Catholic Church wasn't big on that at the time, though today they have a statue where he uh, where he was burned, and uh, and he's more revered these days. No, that's nice. <clears throat> you know, at least later on. Yeah, yeah. So the the basically the the idea here. Uh, if you want to look at like just sort of a simple version, is you take these mundane facts mm-hmm. and you position them in a spatial framework. Okay. And you make I'm with you. and you make them interesting. All right. All right. So the the idea of the memory palace is to create a mental house right. in which to house and organize symbolic images mm-hmm. which then could serve as a cue for information retrieval, right? Right. Like for instance, uh, our good friend um um so Simonides uh, here could easily populate this this banquet table with uh, um, you know a list of addresses he needs to remember. If he can come up with a unique way uh, to remember each one and then remember them in order based on where they are at the table. Okay, and um, just a little side fact to Thomas Harris's novel uh, Hannibal. Actually, Hannibal Lecter uses memory palaces for his patients' records. Oh, does he? Yeah, he does. I've, I've forgotten about that. I, I read that uh, ages ago. Yeah, he even includes music too for. The rooms that he's going into. Oh well. Um, well, hey, if it's good enough for Hannibal Lecter, you know, it's it's good enough for me. Which is why I actually tried this out yesterday. Okay. Uh, and and I'm going to to repeat everything that I uh, imagined the way I built and populated my memory palace so that I could remember a list of five things to get from the grocery store on the way home. Okay, you didn't write a thing down. No, did not write a thing down. I didn't put anything in my in my phone and. Uh, 
and so these were the things. Just it was uh, soy creamer, Ingelhofer's uh, mustard, ant traps, frozen fruit, and toilet paper. So um, you know, just this a standard run for me. Um, All right. What does your mem- memory palace look like? Okay. Walk us through it. So I decided to for the space. I decided to use the space that I'm occupying right now. The How Stuff Works podcast room slash podcast chamber. Okay. Okay? So, this is the way I pictured it. All right, over here, behind you, is our sound booth. Mm -hmm. And inside it, I pictured a robot cow drinking coffee for my soy milk. Okay. All right? And then seated where you are, you're Mm -hmm. you're not here, but instead, there's a large German man uh, in in a lederhosen Mm -hmm. uh, with a big mustache going on, Mm -hmm. and he's got big clumps of uh, of spicy hot mustard in his mustache. Mm. And that's the the Ingelhofer's mustache, because it has a little German man on the label. Uh, Then in this seat uh, between us, because the table that we record at has a third chair that is never occupied by an actual person. but in, in my memory palace, it is occupied by a large pile, like a, a human-sized pile of frozen fruit. And it's just gleaming in the lights, melting a little bit, smelling sweet. And, uh, and you know, I can see strawberry and mango and all. And, and, and because this is an important part of the memory palace, to add some details to it, you know. You're not just thinking the word, um, you know, you're not just thinking the word frozen fruit. You're picturing it. Right. Uh, it, it is existing in space and not just a concept. Okay. All right. And then if I were to poke my head out through these curtains where Jerry is sitting, uh, our producer, I would see a giant ant. And uh, that ant is dressed uh, in Maria von Trapp's dress from The Sound of Music because I need to remember ant traps. Wow. Yeah. And then the fifth item, uh, standing at the green screen behind Jerry's seat, uh-huh. uh, there is a toilet paper mummy going through a number of sexy poses for the camera. They're sexy poses? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, and I so anyway, it worked. I was able to remember, I know, only five things. It's kind of puny. But I was able to remember these five things. Now, you can also say that while I was doing this for the podcast, I was applying more thought to this than I would normally apply to the list that I, of things I need to pick up. Uh, and it's also worth noting that even though this is an abbreviated version, mm-hmm. one can use... Uh, use, people use this for hundreds of items. Right. And in fact, in, in each room, you could have, I don't know, five, ten different items mm-hmm. that are living there. It's just a, a matter of placing the object, right? Yeah. Well, how about you? Do you have a memory palace uh, you've constructed? I for do. And I'm not going to actually share it because um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a. I'll share one on my okay. on my list. And uh, basically, I need to mail my FSA reimbursement, okay. right? Flexible spending account. So at my front door, I just. Uh, pictured angry cherubs with wings made out of dollar bills greeting me at the front door with a pile of mail. Oh, well, that's good. Right. Like, you know, and they're angry because they're like, yeah. if you don't send this stuff in, my wings are going to fall off or whatever. I don't know. But I do have other rooms. Um, but just for brevity's sake, I won't I won't tell. But what I love about this is that it quickly becomes very similar to the sur- surrealism that, I don't know about you, but for me that I experience in my dreams. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, all of a sudden, there's these incongruent things going on, and they're they're wild, and they're fantastic. And that's, I think, why we remember our dreams sometimes, right? Because they're so extraordinary. Yeah, we to were... To us, at least. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we were we were talking about, about this, how we take something mundane, and we turn it into something crazy and memorable, mm-hmm. in the same way that on... Uh, 
this trip from New York. Uh, we, we both just uh, came back from attending the World Science Festival in New York City. Woot woot, by the way. Yeah, 2011. It's going to be back in 2012. Highly recommend anybody who's big into the science and lives in New York to give it a go. Mm-hmm. And then that's actually where I attended a, 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 a pan- I, I was in the audience for a panel on memory, and mm-hmm. that's where I got really excited about the, the concept of the, the memory palace. But uh, while I was waiting to go uh, into one of these events, uh, my wife and I were, uh, were waiting out in this little courtyard area, and uh, we saw this man walk up uh, with a box, a cardboard box under his arm that said trout on the side. Like, I don't know, like a beer cart, like a box that like beer would come in or something. Right. But he just said trout. I don't know what the brand was. But anyway, he uh, he's standing there, puts his box down on the ground, and he gets a handful of, uh, of uh, like, uh, uh, bread or crackers out, and he starts feeding the pigeons, which I, I don't think is technically illegal, but he's doing it anyway. So he's feeding the pigeons. Three of them land there, and they're just standing there eating. And then slowly he starts raising his hand up moving his hand forward, and then he reaches down, snatches one of the pigeons, stuffs it into the cardboard box, and then walks off with the cardboard box full of a pigeon. And so you told me that, and I don't think I'll ever be able to look at a pigeon without thinking <laughs> of that poor pigeon's fate. Yeah. Or or, or wondering, again, why the side of the, the, uh, the cooler said trout. Yeah. Yeah. So that, it's... Yeah, I, I have no idea what what he was doing with it, what the purpose was, if he was an official pigeon catcher, if he was going to eat it for dinner. Uh, you know, who knows? But it was memorable because it was so weird. Yeah. And uh, so the Memory Palace is, is is kind of like, let's make the, the mundane fact. Let's make the soy creamer that I will inevitably forget. Let's make that into something memorable so that I can't forget it, at least for a short term. Right, right. Um, and then... You can you can use this this uh, this memory palace and you can populate it with hundreds of items. So it, you can you can remember a list in order of hundreds of, of items. And that's what mental athletes do. They're called mental athletes. Yeah. So, and we'll get to them in a bit. Um, yeah. After this quick break. Yeah. And we're back. Do you remember what we were talking about, everyone? Memory Palace. Something about robotic cows. No, yeah, yeah. Well, that that was part of it. That was how we remembered the, the soy cream. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just walk through this really quickly. Just like sort of four easy steps on how you can create your own memory palace. Okay. Um, so we've already talked about the first step, which is create a physical location that you can clearly visualize. It's, right. Now, you need to, and th- that's why I went with the podcast chamber for me because I see it all the time. I'm very familiar with the with the locations, and I can I can imagine it instantly. Right. And you can make up your own palace. You know, just yeah. as long as you can. Um, get a clear beat on on the detail of it. Like, might I recommend like maybe the command deck from one of uh, the Star Trek shows? That would be a good. There you go. Yeah. That's a good example. Um, and step two is to establish a memory route through the location. Right. right? So if you're going to use, say, your childhood home, then you want to go through the front door and you know pick a route that say you go left to the kitchen and then down the hallway or so on and so forth. Um, you want to keep that same route all the time. Am I right about that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, Joshua Thor, who uh, wrote a book about all this called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein, he uh, actually did a short video for uh, the World Science Festival, and, uh, and it was shown during this uh, memory panel that I attended. And uh, and he he was he actually did it in a garden, like in a like a well, it wasn't really a garden; it was more like a garden area of a park or something. Mm-hmm. And he was he actually you know he's like all right, 
uh, here is going to be, and it was something crazy like, you know, Einstein moonwalking, that's the title. Yeah. And then he walked through it, and he was able to do like a list of 110 things. Yeah, and as he's walking through it, he's placing the object. So this is really important. Yeah. So once you're, you establish your route, you want to put your objects that you want to remember, your things, your concepts that you want to remember in that room. And you, the reason why you want to do this is because it becomes what's called a memory peg. Okay, okay, so that's important for step three, is you need to now peg the memory to the object. So that's when you start to think about these really bizarre associations, right? More, the more bizarre, the better. Mm-hmm. If you want to remember to pick up bananas, then you can visualize your front door as a banana daiquiri portal with Carmen Miranda greeting you or something along those lines. It helps if you're kind of silly, I think. <laughs> Silliness, yeah. definitely, yeah. And you can add a song or a scent to the memory, especially if you're Hannibal Lecter, right? And then step four is just to repeat the visualization until you've cemented the, the objects to the memories. You've really pegged those memories. Yeah. All right. So it's, it's a fairly simple process. So we should probably talk about the research part of this, which is pretty cool, uh, and, and actually talk about these mental athletes. So there are many types of memory. We don't just have memory in, in the human brain. We have, uh, just to give you a brief idea, we have sensory memory. We have short-term, long-term, explicit, implicit, procedural, declarative, episodic, semantic. And, uh, and we also have uh, spatial memory. And uh, the spatial context is extremely important. Like it, because, again, at a, at a very basic level, we are navigating a world, a physical world of movable, numerous objects and symbols. That's right. And I've talked about this before, that when you walk into a room, that 99% of what you're perceiving isn't necessarily coming through your eyes. It's coming from the associations that your brain is making spatially. Right. So you're, whether or not you realize it, you're, you're judging the height of the ceiling or the doors and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, it, and if you look back in our evolutionary history, you know, there's a time where you need to remember the field where you you know, killed a monkey that you're going to eat or something mm-hmm. of that nature. Um, you know, where does it lay in the field? Has it moved? Um, so every we end up having this spatial scaffolding upon which we make sense of our entire lives. Just think of a calendar or think of a timeline. Mm-hmm. Like these are these are spatial scaffolding systems that we use to understand what's going on in the world around us. Yeah, and I especially like the the evolutionary example because <clears throat> if you in, the, in this, why you would need the spatial memories because mm-hmm. yeah, again, think about like trying to find food sources and mapping that out in your brain. Yeah. Or trying to figure out where that den of lions are. Yeah. And how best to avoid them. Yeah, so it, it you, it's really important to stress here that the memory palace is not a trick. It's not really a trick. Mm-hmm. It's not something. Uh, and when you have uh, people who can who can use it and use it to impressive degrees, not just for five items at the grocery store, that uh, they're they're not doing anything out of the ordinary. Like the, the, the spatial way and the way that we use spatial memory in the memory palace is just how we think. It's how the brain works. Well, and also these mental athletes that compete, right? Mm-hmm. They actually have very average memories. They've yeah. tested them. Yeah, these are not. Yeah, super-powered brains here. These are normal brains. They're using, um, uh, just to to tie down what's happening in in the brain, and there's a lot going on in the brain with memory, but uh, spatial memory is tied to the hippocampus, which is located in the temporal lobe. And it kind of looks like a long gummy worm kind of thing in your brain. And it's also worth noting that at the head of this worm, you have the amygdala, which is tied to emotional memory. Uh, which, again, kind of looks like the head of the worm. And underneath that, you have the parahippocampal, which is tied into details, memory recoding and memory retrieval. Mm -hmm. But the hippocampus 
that's spatial, and that's the area that really fires up uh, when these mental athletes start using the memory palace to uh, exceptional degrees. That's right. In a study of eight top-ranking mental athletes, they were asked to memorize three-digit numbers, black-and-white photographs of people's faces, and magnified images of snowflakes. Researchers found that in comparison to the control group of non-mental athletes, the mental athletes were using a lot more of their spatial memory in that hippocampus region that you talked about. Um, And again, it's because they're using that spatial reasoning to peg a blueprint of all the objects uh, that they're memorizing. Yeah. So, um, so we're talking about these mental athletes. Let's talk specifically about one of the more famous ones, I suppose, by now, um, Joshua Four. Yeah, this is the guy who wrote uh, Moon's Moonwalking with Einstein that I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, he he became interested in these individuals, um, and uh, and he's just a journalist, right? Yeah, just he was a journalist. Like, I want to find out more about this. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, he he became interested in the U.S. Memory Championship, and he went there expecting to interview a bunch of savants and uh, and just you know mental giants mm-hmm. and. And they, they kind of laughed at the, the notion when he when he asked them the questions, because they were like, "No, I'm just you know a normal dude, and this is not that complicated." And so he kind of took it on as a challenge to like, "Well, let me see what I can do. Let me try out the the memory palace. Let me let me see what I can do with the the method of Loki." Yeah, and he spent a whole year. This was just pretty incredible uh, with memory champ Ed Cook. Um, Literally, just so he could improve his mental acuity, right? Yeah. That that was his the first thing that she, he wanted to try to do. But he became really obsessed with becoming a mental athlete himself. And he went on to compete in and win the U.S. Memory Championship. Yeah. And each morning during this year, he would spend 15 minutes memorizing a new poem or memorizing the names in an old yearbook, for instance. Uh, but that's not that's not where it stopped. I mean, he again, he was obsessed with this. So on the subway, he would start to memorize random numbers, or he would keep a deck of playing cards with him and memorize those. And he began to catalog everything in his existence, and constructing like basically like condominiums of of mental palaces, yeah, so to um, speak. Cook, the uh, the guy that he uh, he interviewed, mm-hmm. um, he actually did a. Uh, uh, like a TED Talk or a TEDx Talk or something, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll have to embed that in the uh, the blog post that we do to accompany this uh, this particular episode, uh, because he goes into how he would he uses the the memory power system. He's memorized things like Chinese characters. Yeah, uh, you know, basically learning bits of another language via the memory palace. Yeah, and he has some really good visual representations yeah. in that video. Really silly ones. Are great. It, yeah, super silly. Joshua Four, yeah, completely obsessed. He even bought a pair of goggles. And spray painted them black, and then he cut out eye holes in them. <laughs> and this is all in an effort so that he could better concentrate on his memory skills. Yeah. So it looks like that part. Of it sounds like you know Jedi Master training, where yeah. you're like wearing or some sort of you know Far Eastern like thing. But then in his mind, he's thinking about goofy things like uh, <laughs> you know like uh, Catherine Hepburn juggling frogs or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And there's a great New York Times article uh, called "Secrets of a Mind Gamer." And in it, uh, Cook says to the, the reporter there that photographic memory, because the reporter brings up, well, isn't this just photographic memory? Yeah, and no, not it, at all. Yeah, and he says, no, photographic memory is a despicable myth. It doesn't exist. In fact, my memory is quite average. All of us here have quite average memories. Okay, so this is coming from the guy who could recite most of Paradise Lost by heart, as well as like 252 random digits he could commit to memory in like five minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, these really are incredible feats that these guys are doing. Yeah, in- indeed. And actually, um, you know, this is a competition that they have among themselves. 
But Cook says that it's also an attempt for them to rescue a long lost tradition of memory training. Because again, we don't necessarily need it these days, right? Mm-hmm. Except that we still have these crazy failing memories, right? Yeah. Um, just for the most mundane things. Like I, I mentioned to you that um, I think a lot for some reason about Quentin Tarantino movies, but inevitably I always forget his name. And yet it's something that, you know, I reference a lot. Well, how are you remember it? How would you use the memory uh, palace to remember? Okay, his the name? reason why I can even say Quentin Tarantino now is because now I think about going to San Quentin and going to the commissary. And in the commissary, Mario Batali is fixing 10,000 plates of Tarantino pasta. We'll see that. Uh, well, see, and that makes perfect sense within the, the architecture of your mind. But I would have to use Quentin Tarantino to remember that other stuff you were talking about. I mean, Quentin, Sam I Quentin. See, I Sam see. Quentin, I know, but who is the guy? Mario who, Batali? Who's that? Oh, man, he's this great Italian chef. And, okay. and you don't have to... Oh, is he the redheaded dude? Yeah, yeah, okay. he's pretty outrageous in and of himself. You don't really have to do much to him. Like, you know, you don't want to gild the lily there. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> but, yeah, anyway, I mean, this is, this is stuff that you can do. Um, but it's pretty amazing to look at this uh, Joshua Four character and Ed Cook and see them in action. And... Um, in that video that Ed Cook has um, on the TEDx, he says that you should use your memory in a playful and enjoyable way, and you should experience it as a gift rather than a boring and annoying thing you'd rather park away in your iPhone. Yeah, because that's the thing. They're enjoying these memory games. And I have to say, learning that little list was kind of was kind of fun. So uh, the, the five, measly five things I had to remember the grocery store. But I don't know, maybe I should play with it more and, and see how it goes. And, and I certainly encourage anyone listening to uh, to give the mem- memory palace a, uh, a go, to uh, to try using it, even if it's just like, you know, the next time you need to do a grocery list of just a few items, yeah. don't write it down. Don't put it in your cell phone. Try constructing a memory palace out of it. And I think you'll be surprised at how well it works. All right, we're back, and we're going to speak with Nelson Dellis here. Again, a three-time USA memory champion. Uh, he's uh, he's currently ranked one of the top 50 uh, in the world memory rankings. And uh, he started competing in 2009 when he came in 16th in the USA memory championships that year. And in the year since, he's won uh, three times and finished uh, in the top three spots. Uh, he runs the Extreme Memory Tournament, ExtremeMemoryTournament.com. That's where you'll find it. Uh, and he also has a, uh, a non-profit uh, titled Climb for Memory. And you'll find that at ClimbForMemory.org. That's a, a non-profit charity aimed at raising awareness and funds for Alzheimer's disease by climbing mountains around the world. So uh, welcome to the show, Nelson. I'm going to start off by just asking, uh, what does competing in the U.S. Memory Championships consist of? Yeah, so it's actually, um, it's a one-day event, and um, basically there's a morning and an afternoon part. And the morning part is based off of uh, four events. So we memorize faces. We have um, a packet of 117 pictures, and we have 15 minutes to memorize as many of those faces with their name pairs as possible. Um, And then after that, we have speed numbers, so we're given a page filled with numbers and we have five minutes to memorize as many as possible. Then we do a deck of cards as fast as possible. And then finally a poem, a previously unpublished poem that we try to memorize word for word um, in 15 minutes. The top eight from that morning event uh, set of uh, events goes into the afternoon rounds, which is like a playoff series of rounds. 
the first is a random word list. We have to memorize in 15 minutes as many words as possible. And we go on stage and are eliminated if you say any wrong. Um, and then when three are eliminated, we move on to the next round, which is um, a tea party. That's what it's called. We get audience members to come up and say things about themselves, like their name, where they're from, phone number, hobbies. And we have to memorize those. And then finally, the final event is to memorize two decks of cards in five minutes. And it's basically set on stage until somebody messes up and you're left with the champion. So what's your method? Do you use the method of loci? Right. No, it's, it's, I, everyone that you'll find in these competitions will use some form of the memory palace technique uh, or the method of loci. And, um, that's, that's what, what separates us all pretty much in my opinion is, is basically practice. How much time did you spend, um, training, uh, cause you get faster at learning, uh, being able to use this method and uh, more efficient at it. And can you share anything uh, on your particular take on the method, or is uh, or is that sort of a trade secret? No, I, I can. Uh, it's funny in this world of, of mnemonics, competitive mnemonics. I see everybody's willing to share their techniques because there are no secrets. It just comes down to how much do you train. Um, so, in terms of what I do, it's nothing crazy. I mean, I use uh, memory palaces from my childhood, my homes that I've lived in, apartments, um, workplaces, things like that. And what, what it comes down to is, like I said, practice, but also for some of the events, it's um, it's big on strategy. So, for example, numbers, I have a specific system that I've come up with um, to help me translate these numbers into things that I can place in the memory palace. Um, and that, I guess, is kind of where some people may have... Um, an advantage uh, over others. But that again, takes time. If you have a, the more complicated your system, the more time you need to spend preparing it and practicing it. Do you find yourself using the memory palace for things outside of competitions? Like when you're not in the game and how much of it do you use in the course of any given day? You know, at the beginning when I was getting into this, I would try to memorize everything, people I meet, things I see, whatever. But um, the more I got into memory sports and the more I would practice, the more I'd just be exhausted by the time it was, you know, real life. So actually, a lot of the time I'm nowadays, I'm just kind of like, I don't want to be on all the time. So I, I kind of shut it off, which is interesting in itself because it, it, it shows that this thing is, uh, it's, it's something I have to do with, make an effort to, to do. It's not just a natural um, thing that happens, you know, but that being said, I mean, I do use it obviously, uh, if I need to, if I'm at a party or an important networking event, I use it obviously to memorize names and facts about people. How has the method of loci changed the way you look at memory as a whole, particularly, uh, the degree to which uh, we can trust it? Yeah. You know, learning these techniques has definitely given me a lot more confidence in my own memory uh, it's allowed me to do things that I never thought I'd be able to do. Um, and it just shows me that the mind is really, I don't want to say limitless because that's, that's a bit silly to say that, but there are a lot of things that we can do with our minds that we may not believe is possible, you know? Um, and that's, that to me is just the beauty of this whole thing is that there's so much more than we know. 
And, uh, you know, we should give ourselves a lot more credit sometimes. We're too quick to say, oh, I can't do that. Um, That's impossible. But, you know, there are a lot of things that are possible, and it's just a matter of thought, you know? So who's harder on you when you actually forget something, uh, yourself or other people? (laughs) At this point, probably people that I know. You know, everybody expects me to remember everything. And while I do remember a lot, like I said, I do like to kind of take time off from being on all the time, you know? So, and, and, you know, you can imagine everybody who meets me expects me to remember their name. And that's a lot of people. Of course, they remember my name because I'm Nelson, the memory guy, right? They come towards me. Um, So, yeah, I guess now it's more other people. (laughs) Is there any sort of information that's particularly difficult to incorporate into the memory palace in, in your experience? Yeah, I guess names are, are pretty tricky um, because you're not really using a memory palace per se. You kind of are, but it's in disguise, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, you instead of attaching a piece of information, an image to a location in a memory palace, you're attaching it to a person's face or a person's body or something about them. Um, and the tricky part about that is you can't really review in the same way that you can with a memory palace. The memory palace, you know very well the, the, the person and their attribute or their feature that you use as an anchor, you know, it goes away with them when they're gone. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of scary in that sense because you don't have control over that. Here's a question. Does it affect your dreams? I don't know. Not really. I'm, I'm a bad dreamer. I don't really remember my dreams, which is kind of funny, I guess. Um, but I, I will say that leading up to competition, when I'm memorizing a lot, training a lot, I have had dreams where I, uh, that I'm memorizing. And when I wake up, I remember like the sequence of cards that I, that I memorized in the dream, which is bizarre. Now, I know what a lot of people are wondering. Can anyone become a memory athlete, uh, or do you have to have a certain type of cognitive architecture already in place? Um, no, anybody can join. Uh, there's no, like, qualifications or anything. Um, and the, the techniques are pretty easy to, to, to learn, but obviously if you want to compete at the high level, um, a lot of prep needs to go into it. Can you walk us through an example of the sort of memory palace you might employ to remember, say, something like a series of playing cards? Um, yeah, you could. Uh, let's see. So I had, I had to do a speech today, and uh, some of the I can I can maybe recite off some of the images I saw today. Okay. All right. So the first three cards were uh, eight of clubs, queen of hearts, and five of spades, which is um, Bear Grylls, you know, the adventurer guy, um, cooking a pair of scissors and then uh, moving on to the next location was the 10 of hearts, two of clubs and 10 of clubs, which is a close friend of mine being crucified on the floor. Um, and then you have Jennifer Connolly um, standing on top of a uh, television set while playing her game boy. And then I have Satan waving his wand and suddenly he's wearing gloves. I have an ex-girlfriend sniping with a golf club. Um, then there's a pirate, Jack Sparrow. He's dunking, slam dunking a desk. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger was moonwalking on top of a horse. Um, and so on. 
right, so there you have it. Uh, some insight from an expert uh, utilizer of the Memory Palace. Uh, thank you, Nelson, for taking the time to chat with us. If you want to follow Nelson on Twitter, you can find him at Climb for Memory. And again, uh, be sure to visit his website, climbformemory.org. That's the, the nonprofit charity aimed at raising awareness and funds for Alzheimer's disease. As always, you can find uh, this and any number of other podcast episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, as well as blog posts, videos, links out to our various social media accounts, you name it. And if you have thoughts about the Memory Palace or you want to tell us about a particularly bizarre Memory Palace you've ever constructed, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.